1966, a movie came out titled Alfie and tells the story of a young womanizing man who leads a self-centered life purely for his own enjoyment until events take place that cause him to question his way of life. He finds himself lonely, unhappy, and his uncaring behavior and his loneliness suddenly become priorities in his life. I did not see the movie, by the way. I have read about it. <clears throat> uh, I think that many of you who are over the age of 40, maybe over the age of 50 or 60, can remember the, uh, the hit song from Alfie. I thought of singing this to you, but I wanted you to stay around for a while. It's, what's it all about, Alfie? Is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about when you sort it out, Alfie? Are we meant to take more than we give, or are we meant to be kind? And if only fools are kind, Alfie, then I guess it's wise to be cruel. And if life belongs only to the strong, Alfie, what will you lend on an old golden rule. As sure as I believe there's a heaven above, Alfie, I know there's something much more, something even non-believers can believe in. I believe in love, Alfie. Without true love, we just exist, Alfie. Until you find the love you've missed, you're nothing, Alfie. When you walk, let your heart lead the way, and you'll find love any day. Alfie, Alfie. Very self-centered life, this individual live. You know, Mr. Herbert Armstrong spoke of two trees, two ways of life. And that's really the choice that each one of us make, not only on a grand scale, but actually in day-to-day decisions. The little decisions that we make when we get up, what we put on, where we go, what we do, what we eat. All of those are little decisions, but they all add up to one big decision of how we're going to live our life. What is important to us in our lives? In Luke, the 19th chapter, we have the example of the parable of the minas. And we're all very familiar with this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I just want to read a couple of verses here. Luke 19 And verse 16, it says, Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. I'm assuming all of us are very familiar with this uh, parable. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little have authority over ten cities. God is looking at our lives today. And what we do in this life, for the most part, is very little. It's little things. And God is looking at those little decisions that we make, and they're all adding up to something and what kind of a reward he is going to give us in the millennium in tomorrow's world. And so the first one, he says, because you are faithful in little little things, have authority over ten cities. And that's, you know, I think many people read over that and say, well, ten what does that mean? Well, I think we know what that means when we look at all of the verses, and we have that booklet on what is the true gospel, 
and uh, what is it, Tomorrow's World, What It Will Be Like, or The World Head, What It Will Be Like. You can get those booklets. Showing What God's Intent Is for Mankind, Your Ultimate Destiny. Another one which describe our uh, what we're here for, what we're striving for. Back in the 16th chapter of Luke, and verse 10, it says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. So often we live our lives thinking that when the big test comes, that's when I'll stand up. But in reality, it's the little things day to day that determine the big decisions that we'll make in life. If you want to know what somebody's future behavior is, look at their current behavior today. The decisions that we make on a daily basis, are we brave, are we courageous in the things that we do, or do we compromise because we think it's too hard, but we think that when the big test comes, I'll stand up tall then. That's a a trait of human nature. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is not your own? Or who is will give you what is your own? So God wants us to understand that the little things in life are important. We have a choice. We can live a self-centered life, or we can live a life that is outgoing and caring for others. Two words are very important words because they describe our world today. Uh, They're philosophical words. I think they were understood a little bit more in previous centuries. But one is nihilism and the other is hedonistic or hedonism. Nihilism comes from a Latin word meaning nothing. And it leads to the rejection of all religious and moral principles. In other words, if there is nothing here, if there is no uh, no meaning to life, really what it's saying is there's no meaning to life, then we can reject all moral principles. We can be a, an Alfie, in other words. And hedonism is closely associated with it, but it's different. It comes from the pursuit of self-indulgence, sensual pleasure being the proper aim of human life. Now, they're very closely associated, but they're slightly different there. And what we would have to say is that Alfie was both a hedonist and a nihilist, or nihilism, believed in nihilism, that nothing, there's just nothing, there's no purpose, there's no grand scheme of things. We're just the result of evolutionary chance, and so whatever you decide is good is good, and whatever somebody else decides is good is good, and Really, why be good? Because, you know, there's there's no judge of things. Just take care of the self. And sensual pleasure, uh, really what Alfie was all about, is what he subscribed to. So taken together, they describe a life void of meaning and replacing morality with sensual pleasure. Sensual being all kinds of appetites we might have, sexual, uh, food, uh drugs, whatever it might be, essential pleasure. And this is what our world is all about today. In reality, more and more our world is turning away from any kind of godly values. Any pretense of that is fading away quickly in the minds of many. 
Now, there still are very religious people. I know that our neighbors uh, are more religious than, than you might think. We went over to one of them uh, for dinner uh, one evening, and they do not seem to be the, the ones who would be showing up at church every Sunday. At least we don't see them driving off in, uh, Sunday mornings. But he gave thanks over the meal. And I was impressed by that because he, he wasn't doing it for a show. He wasn't giving some memorized prayer. He was saying it from his heart. And then we have others who are very religious. The girl that Nick lives next door, I think I may have mentioned, she talks openly about her future and praying about it and so forth. They may not understand the truth of God in, in the truest sense, but they're individuals who at least are trying to live the right way of life and in many cases are simply deceived on the truth of the Bible. And yet they are striving in the best that they know how. But our world as a whole is getting further and further away from the truth. One of our ministers up in in uh, Canada was contacted by uh, the 700 Club, uh, wanting to perhaps be a guest or at least talk to him about it, uh, which he uh, is not going to do, uh, because he has some expertise in a particular field that has to do with education and uh, in Al- not Alberta, but British Columbia. When young people go to school now, apparently uh, kindergarten, they get a little talking to as to Johnny, uh, do you think you're Johnny or Joanne? And parents are finally waking up to the dangers that are out there. And they're becoming concerned. It shows the world in which we live. In today's sermon, we're going to explore what we are, what is our hope, and how do we get there. And then I'm going to give an example or two. And I'm counting on you to be able to connect the dots. Because as I go through the sermon... It may seem at times that it's a little disconnected, but there is a connection to it all. So try to connect the dots. Have you ever meditated on what you are? Why are you, you, and not someone else? I think about that from time to time, and all I do is go nuts, and that probably doesn't surprise any of you. But you try to figure it out. Why am I me? And then you start thinking about if this had happened different in life, then what what would my life be like? Would I know me? In other words, the conscious me. Would I would I really know me? On the other hand, I'd be somebody so different than I am today. I think back on the Vietnam War, and I went to Ambassador College and. Uh, because of that, escaped the, the draft. I wasn't doing it to escape the draft. Never thought of running off to Canada or anything like that uh, to escape the draft. I was a conscientious objector, but I would face the uh, the music, whatever it was, and do whatever I had to do if it was to go to jail. But nevertheless, my lottery number was seven. <clears throat> they put everybody's birth date in a bin or whatever it was, drew them out, and the first 120 or so they expected would be drafted, the next 120 might be, and then the last ones you're probably free. Well, mine was number seven. So my chance of being drafted was absolute. 
uh, unless I was unfit for military service, which they were taking just about anybody, I think, back then. But if I'd gone to Vietnam, what would my life have become? It would be very different. I, I would not be the me that I am today. If you lose consciousness, as, as some people have hit themselves on the head and their total past memory has been forgotten, they're not the same person after that because part of what we are is our memory and our values and, and everything that, that we've lived. That's a part of what we are. You know, you can think about these things. You can philosophize about them. You can sit down with a, you know, stiff drink with a friend and and talk about these things. And you kind of go nuts because it's hard to figure out, isn't it? Who am I? Why am I me instead of someone else? What were we before we came into existence? Billions of years, eons of time went by. And you and I weren't there. We weren't around. We don't know what happened. And it's hard to think back to a time when you weren't because you kind of slowly come into this consciousness. And so consciousness is something that is being studied a great deal by various individuals. What is consciousness? And one thing that's bringing it to the fore is the development of computerized memory and and uh, power. And we talk about artificial intelligence. Can computers have consciousness? Can a computer have consciousness? There are those who think that it can. Uh, in, in a book, uh, The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel, I'd like to read a, a little bit here on page 325. He's interviewing a fellow by the name of Moreland who is uh, very much into uh, this sort of thing, the whole discussion of what is consciousness. I mean, there are people who study this. What, what does it mean to be a conscious individual? Uh, they, they sometimes refer to it as sentient, which means having the ability to perceive or feel things, having the, the ability to feel or see things. Moreland's denial that the brain produces consciousness In other words, what he's saying here is that the physical brain is not what produces consciousness. And he's really promoting an idea of an immortal soul. But in reality, when you think about the spirit and man, which I'll get to here in just a few minutes, uh, the spirit and man really fits very well with what he is describing here. But Moreland's denial that the brain produces consciousness made me think of the debate over whether future computers can become sentient. In other words, can they have uh, feelings? Do they perceive various things, able to perceive or feel things? I decided to ask him to weigh in on the issue, although his ultimate conclusion was never in doubt. So he asked him this question, if a machine can achieve equal or greater brain power as human beings which they really have not. I know that there are machines that can beat people at jeopardy and different things like that. But when it comes to the totality of the human brain, computers haven't reached that yet. Then some physicalists, those who think that it's just physical, there's nothing spiritual or beyond that, say the computer would become conscious, I said. I assume you would disagree with that. Moreland chuckled. 
Quote, one atheist said that when computers reach the point of imitating human behavior, only a racist would deny them full human rights. But of course, that's absurd. Nobel winner John Eccles said he's appalled by the naivete of those who foresee computer sentience. He said there's no evidence whatsoever for the statement made that at an adequate level of complexity, computers also would achieve self-consciousness. Look, we have to remember that computers have artificial intelligence, not intelligence. It's artificial. It's not real. And there's a huge difference. There's no, what's it like to be a computer? There was a computer thinking, what's it like? What was it like before I came? How do I feel today? And there's a huge, okay, he says, a computer has no insights, no awareness, no first-person point of view, no insights, no problems. A computer doesn't think. You know what? I now see what this multiplication problem is really like. In other words, the uh, computer saying, oh, now, now I understand what this multiplication problem is really like. Doesn't think that way. Spits out information. It's artificial. A computer uh, can engage in behavior if it's wired properly, but you've got to remember that consciousness is not the same as behavior. Consciousness is being alive. It's what causes behavior uh, in really conscious beings. But what causes behavior in a computer is electrical circuitry. Now, I'm trying to make a point here of the fact that you and I are more than a simple computer. We're more than physical things coming together and some sort of a a physical existence. There's more to it than that. In other words, man is more than a physical computer. In 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, we have a, a little bit of understanding of, of um, what God has in mind. He, it's revealed by the Apostle Paul, which is quite interesting because you wonder, how did Paul understand this? Well, there are verses in the Old Testament that help us to understand that there is a spirit man. But he says, God is, uh, well, go back to verse 9, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. It's written, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them, those hidden things, to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of man which is in him? In other words, in this particular book, uh, he, he's looking at it from a historical perspective that goes all the way back to the time of the Greeks and the idea of an immortal soul, which I gave a sermon on, I think, maybe the last time or the time before, talked about the immortal soul and why that is a, a false doctrine and where it comes from. And uh, some of the people, I think, Origen was mentioned here, uh, the fellow that castrated himself, well, he wasn't the most balanced individual, but he had a lot to say about the soul, the immortal soul, and they go back to Plato to bring these things out. But the Bible does reveal there is a spirit in man. There is something that makes us different. It doesn't live by itself. It doesn't go off uh, and, and think apart from the human being, but nevertheless, it empowers the human brain. 
He said, well, what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So God's spirit must enter into our minds and connect up uh, with the spirit in man, and it makes us a new creature. Notice over in 1 John, 1 John, the third chapter, says, whoever has been born or begotten of God does not sin. It's not talking about the impossibility of sinning. It's saying that, you know, how could you do such a thing if you're begotten of God? For his seed, that's God's seed, remains in him. Now, the word seed there comes from the Greek sperma. God's sperma, it remains in him. And this is uniquely used here. And it's simply saying he cannot sin because he has been born or begotten as it should be of God. So the spirit of God connecting up with the spirit in man makes us a new creature. What is it? Romans, the eighth chapter or sixth chapter. This is dangerous when I do this. Go off script here. Um, Verse uh, chapter eight, yes. For as, verse fourteen, Romans eight fourteen. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. God's Spirit must lead us. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption or sonship, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. One word is Arabic, the other uh, is Greek, but it has that endearing sense of Daddy, Father. Then verse 16, the Spirit himself, that's God's Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, God's Spirit coming together with the Spirit in man makes us a new creature. And we begin to think different from the way that we did before. And yet this is something that doesn't just automatically happen apart from our consciousness. We have to do our part. We must conclude that life is more than computer parts coming together. Now, let's go a slightly different direction, but we can connect the dots here, hopefully. And that is that you and I are living on a planet uniquely in the universe. More than half of Americans believe that our planet has been visited by extraterrestrials. And yet all of the experiments... All of the efforts to contact intelligent life have failed. In fact, there was an article that came out, somebody sent it to me just the last couple weeks, where certain Oxford, uh, England professors basically said, we're alone. We're alone in the universe. Now, there, there's more than one reason for thinking that. Now, I do believe there are spirit beings, there are angelic beings, but we're talking about carbon-based beings, human being-like creatures, whether they look like E.T. or whatever they look like. Uh, the idea that, that we have in our society is that there is intelligent life out there, and half of Americans, more than half, believe that there are extraterrestrials and that they have visited planet Earth. Uh, and, and you get a lot of conspiracies out there as to 
how the government's hiding this and so forth. You know, it's not hard to understand why people believe in extraterrestrials. First of all, we live on a planet that is teeming with life. There's no place you can go on this earth where you're not going to find some kind of life, bacterial life, amoebic life, single-celled life, something. When we were little children, we might go and play in a mud puddle, as, as little boys might. Maybe girls don't. Boys do. And you see little things swimming around there. And they just seem to come out of nowhere. And there was a time when uh, scientists even thought that life just kind of spontaneously arose out of water. I'm always amazed when you go through the mountains, for example, out in Alberta, and you go up to, to Banff and that area, Canmore, <clears throat> and you drive from there to Jasper and you see absolute beauty and you see these mountains and rugged, uh, rocky, brutal mountains and you see trees that are growing up the mountainside and then you see where landslides have taken them all out, but they're climbing toward the top. Life is just trying to go everywhere. It's impossible to stop, in a sense, on this earth. And because we, we're not used to a sterile planet, it, it's hard for us to imagine some place that does not have life. Now, when you add evolution, the idea of evolution, the life can arise from non-living chemicals. And when you look at all of the, the vast number of galaxies and stars and planets that must be out there, it's hard for our human minds to conceive with this background, with evolution and all the rest, that there wouldn't be life out there. Certainly the odds of it are in favor of it, aren't they? Or are they? Viking 1 was launched August the 20th, 1975. It landed 11 months later, June, July the 20th, 1976. That's before some of you were born. I think Mr. DeSimone wasn't alive yet. Uh, we were talking about his birth, his age. I think you were, what, what was it? I don't even know where he is. Okay, doesn't matter. Here he is. 1976. At the very least, he was a pretty small little guy, but and I don't think he was born yet. It's amazing how far back that is. Those of us that were around back then, uh, we're getting old. We're getting old, and that's part of the problem that we're dealing with here. But it landed on Mars. And the purpose was to take pictures. The, the, uh, uh, the, the part of it that stayed around, going around Mars. And then the lander that came down. And the purpose of the lander was to find life on Mars. Now, when I was young, when I was in grade school, they talked about, well, there might be life on Venus or there might be life on Mars. But as time went by, we realized that that's, as far as intelligent life, that's not the case. And so now they're just looking for any kind of life. Now, why? Because if they could show that life evolved someplace else, then that would be proof of evolution. So if they could just find a bacteria on Mars, that would be great. Do you remember, I forget what year it was. I remember I was coming back from summer camp up in Orr, Minnesota. I think it was, that was the one, might have been Michigan camp. I, th I think it was, at any rate, as, as I was coming back, uh, I was living in uh, Canada at the time, 
I, I heard the report that they had discovered life on Mars. Anybody remember that when they reported they discovered? Yeah, a few of you do. They discovered life on Mars. Now, Las Vegas wasn't convinced. They gave odds against it, 20 to 1 or whatever it was. But what they found was a meteor on the South Pole, someplace in the snow and everything, and it had little squiggly markings on it, and they perceived that this came from Mars. I don't know how they knew it came from Mars, but somehow it came from Mars, and that these markings were indications that life had somehow made little squiggles on the, the rocks. But, you know, on page 27 later on, months later, they said, no, didn't find life. It was something else. They had another explanation for it. They're always trying to prove that there's life someplace else. Because if evolution is true, we don't need God. And there's really no purpose, and there's no restraint on our behavior. We can live however we want to live. We can choose how to live. Now, this laboratory they sent up there was a um, one-cubic-foot box, essentially capable of carrying out almost as many experiments as a full-sized university biology lab. This was packed with uh, the ability to carry on experiments. It was a masterpiece of micro-miniaturized housing, some 40,000 components into a box, one foot by one foot. may not have been exactly square, but it was, there was more to the whole thing. Uh, but it was uh, a masterpiece of micro-miniaturized housing, uh, miniaturization housing, some 40,000 components, pumps, chambers, filters, and electronic parts. Wow. How would you like to put something like that together? This was all done at the uh, Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. My wife's cousin uh, used to work there. She, someplace in our files we have some fantastic pictures that were taken by uh, Viking and by other space probes that the Jet Propulsion Lab had, had put out. Now that sounds pretty impressive, 40,000 components. But let's talk about life. Let's talk about that simple cell. I know I've talked about this before. But let's talk about a simple cell because we always hear about the simple cell. And in a recent that program that I recorded this last week, I point out there is no such thing as a simple cell. When you see a biology book, you see there's mitochondria and there's the nucleus and there's this and there's that, and you think of it as just, you know, a few little things floating around there. In Michael Denton's book, Evolutionary Theory and Crisis, he says on page 335, every living cell is a, ver- is a veritable automated factory. And you can find this all over science, that they speak of cells like a factory, a city. Factory, depending on the functioning of up to 100,000 unique proteins. Now, what are the odds of a protein coming into existence by chance? Well, I was quite Mr. Ames' reporting on this. I have as well that... Uh, uh, 
what's the fellow's name? Uh, I'll think of it in a moment. Uh, in his book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, Bill Bryson, he calculates the odds of a 200-string protein. A typical protein is 1 to the power, or 10 to the power, uh, 1 in 10 to the power of 260. That's a 1 followed by 260 zeros, and he goes on to say that's more atoms in the, than exist in the universe, the visible universe, which is 10 to the power of 78 to 10 to the power of uh, 82, someplace in there. In other words, a single protein is virtually impossible. In fact, he says the chance of that happening is nil. It's just not going to happen. And yet here, as Denton points out, it is a factory depending on the functioning of up to 100,000 unique different proteins. Each one that Bryson says is a little miracle. Little is understatement to the extreme. Unique proteins, each of which can be considered to be a basic working component analogous to one of the components in the Viking lab. In other words, the simplest cell that we know of puts the Viking lab to shame. It has 40,000 parts, pumps, filters, various things. But these proteins are little machines within the cell. Some of them are trucks. They carry things here to there. Some of them are gatekeepers. They say, this gets through, this doesn't. It's an amazing thing about the cell. And they are uh, so much greater than Viking lab. Although the tiniest bacterial cells are incredibly small, each is, in effect, a variable micro-miniaturized factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery. And all scientists that I know of describe these proteins as machines. Protein machines. Made up altogether of 100,000 million atoms far more complicated than any machine built by man and absolutely without parallel in the non-living world. The simplest cell. He goes on to say, the complexity of the simplest known type of cell is so great that it is impossible to accept that such an object could have been thrown together suddenly by some kind of freakish, vastly improbable event. Such an occurrence would be indistinguishable from a miracle. What I'm trying to point out is the chance of them finding life on Mars, unless God put it there, and there's no indication of that. But we're talking about just something that spontaneously comes up. You know, they found water, large amount of water, under one of the poles there on Mars. And the uh, the reporterette uh, that I saw, oh, she's just gushing with enthusiasm. Now they're going to find life. Because people think that you got water, you got life. It is so much more complicated than that. You know, DNA is an amazing thing. It's code. It's instructions. And in every one of your cells, you've got six feet of this stuff. And it's all put together all wrapped up nice and neat and stored away in the center of the cell, the nucleus of the cell. It's the most complicated, I say complicated, that, that's 
probably incorrect. It's pretty simple to, to see what it is. But it is the most powerful code known to man. You want to know how powerful it is? The capacity of DNA to store information vastly exceeds that of any other known system. We think of these little chips or sticks that we put in our computers. They're nothing in comparison. It's so efficient that all the information needed to specify an organism as complex as man weighs less than a few thousand millionths of a gram. The information necessary to specify the design of all the species of organisms which have ever existed on the planet. A number, according to G.G. Simpson, of approximately 1,000 million or a billion. Uh, They estimated as a billion different species that have lived on the earth. Not, Not just a billion creatures, different types of creatures could be held in a teaspoon. Imagine that. A teaspoon. I was going to bring one. I forgot to bring a teaspoon. But I think all of you know what a teaspoon is. It can be held in a teaspoon. All of the, the, the information to create all the creatures on the face of the earth, all the different kinds that have ever existed, and there would still be room left over. How much room left over? For all the information in every book ever written. Now that's power. That's code. And are we to believe that somehow such powerful code wrote itself or just happened by chance? You know, if you believe that, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. You know, that's a, it's amazing it, how anybody can understand these things and still think it just happened is beyond imagination. The point to all this is that we are truly unique. As many people believe, and many people believe otherwise, but many people are, you know, very intelligent people believe we're unique in the universe. We are alone in the universe. They found no evidence whatsoever of any kind of intelligence any place in the universe, except angelic beings, and of course they don't believe in that. In Psalm, the eighth chapter, a shepherd boy, later to become king, asked a very important question. And I think it's important sometimes that we stop and we we think about these things. In verse 3, it says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, he wasn't looking at cells, he was looking up into the heavens. The moon... And the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him? We're pretty small, aren't we? We're pretty insignificant in comparison to what's out there. Now, David could not know how many galaxies there are. Uh, They're going up perhaps as many as 600 billion galaxies in each galaxy with several hundred billion stars in it. He couldn't see that. He couldn't know that. But what he could see is all that he needed to see, to be able to look up and say, what am I? I'm down here on this earth, out here in this field all by myself except for the sheep that are around me. I'm looking up there, and what 
What am I that God should even care about me? What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower, or for a little while lower, than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. We are over the works of God's creation on this earth. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Man has been put here to oversee what's on this earth. And we haven't always done a very good job, have we? We killed off every last passenger pigeon on this continent when the skies would be darkened with them. We nearly killed off all the buffalo. Thankfully, we didn't do that. We managed to save a few, and now they're coming back in localized areas. Occasionally see some when you're driving someplace and somebody's raising buffalo. We're very good at destroying. We haven't done a very good job overall, although, truthfully, there have been very good efforts on the part of man to preserve some species on this earth. You know, I remember as a child, I never saw wild turkey. And yet I think you can see wild turkey in virtually every state, as well as Canada. And lots of them, they've come back. A lot of other animals, even deer. I know my father grew up along the borders of uh, Iowa and Nebraska and, and Missouri. They didn't have any deer. All they ever hunted were squirrels. Now you'll find lots of deer and some very big ones. So we've done some things well, but a lot of things we haven't done very well. God put us over this earth to manage it, to keep it. Do we live as though there is no purpose greater than the here and now? I'm talking about in the little decisions that we make each day. Do we live our lives in such a way that it's just have fun for today? Or do we live as though there is a higher purpose, that God is working something out, something that is going to last for eternity? In Psalm 90, Psalm 90 and verse 10, There's some instruction here. It says, The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. How many of us are 70 and over? I've got my wife. I don't, she'll get mad at me here. <laughs> okay. Well, you, there are a number of us here, aren't there? We're living on borrowed time. Now, I figured, I calculated one time that life is made up of five bananas. Each one were 16 years, so that takes us to 80. You know, I'm, if I had five bananas up here, I'd have to chop the last one in half because I've already eaten all the others. Life is short. And David is saying here that It's important that we understand that. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What I'm saying today is we need to not only number our days, we need to understand 
who we are, what we are, what the purpose of life is. Now, I think that we all think we know, and I'm not saying we don't know the purpose of life, but in the decisions that we make each day, the little decisions, how do we live our lives? As though there is a purpose behind it, or do we sometimes forget it and only remember on the Sabbath day? Man is made of the dust of the earth, as we read of in Genesis, the second chapter, in verse 7. Man is made of the dust of the earth. That's what, that's what we are. We're physical. We're flesh and blood. And we are mortal. We know that our first parents brought death to themselves and to all mankind when they sinned, when they chose the wrong tree, when they said, we want to determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And we've been doing the same thing ever since, every one of us individually, as well as collectively. In Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans 5, and verse 12, says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that was Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift... It's not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So we are here as human beings who have brought the death penalty upon ourselves. But we read that there is a way that that death penalty can be removed. It can be taken away. We trust, most of us here, that it has been removed from us individually. But notice, as it says in Romans 3, verse 23, that we need that death penalty removed. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3, 23. And then in Romans 6, 23, it tells us the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. By sin, sin being the transgression of God's law, 1 John 3, 4. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we want that death penalty to be removed, and we talk about something called salvation. We have been saved. Oftentimes people ask, are you saved? Sometimes people say, are you born again? That's a totally different story. But are you saved? Saved from what? Saved from death. In our statement of fundamental beliefs under the heading of salvation, it says salvation is God's gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Upon repentance and baptism, God justifies us from past sins. Justification is the forgiveness of past sins. People think justification and salvation are the same thing. It's not. Upon repentance and baptism, God justifies. He cleans us up. He straightens out the, the, he straightens us up when we were out of line with God from our past sins. We then begin an ongoing process of being saved. 
as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. 2 Peter 3.18. And that's very important, 2 Peter 3.18. We have to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Our salvation will be complete at the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's notice that, 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 50 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So this physical flesh that we um, hopefully are enjoying uh, in the right way, uh, hopefully our pains and uh, rheumatisms and arthritis and various other uh, afflictions that do come upon us are not so bad that we don't enjoy this life. But nevertheless, we're not going to live forever in this physical flesh. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, so he likens death to a sleep. But we shall all be changed in the moment and twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Wow. You know, when we think about the purpose of life and what we're here for, what, what, what is this conscious me, whoever you are, what, what is this all about? We, we can live today or we can live for a higher purpose. And if you think about it, that moment of the resurrection, if you're in your grave, when you lose consciousness, your next instant Awareness, consciousness will be raised up as a spirit being. At least we hope that's the case. Uh, can you imagine what that's going to be like? What would you pay for that privilege? Well, it's going to cost you your life. Day to day, how you live your life, how I live my life. That's the price of it. But is it not worth it? For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, this physical flesh, the marvel of this physical flesh, every cell in our body, an absolute miracle made up of many, many hundreds of thousands of miracles within it. But it's physical, and it's going to come to an end. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And it talks about the sting of death and of the grave. It says the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. It's the law that defines sin and sin is going to kill us. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this fundamental belief, statement of fundamental beliefs, it gives steps toward salvation. The first is faith in Christ. The first important step toward salvation is coming to complete faith in God and in Christ's sacrifice. Now, that's, a, that's something that when we stop and we think about it, is a challenge, isn't it? Do we really believe that a member of the God family, the Logos, the spokesman, as it speaks of in John, the first chapter, became flesh. 
I don't know how that could be, how it could happen. Let me put it that way. I don't know the process by which it happened. But do we believe that happened? Do we believe that he lived a perfect life, that he was crucified and put in the grave and three days and three nights later came up from the grave? Do we believe that? You know, belief is a choice. It's interesting. Dennis Prager, many of you are familiar with, he's got a commentary, Exodus, uh, the Rational Bible. It's written from a very Jewish perspective, and there are a number of things that are definitely off base. But uh, it's, it's an interesting perspective on things. And as he points out, everything in life is a choice. He says, I choose to believe in God. Now, you might think, well, no, you don't choose. Yes, you do. You choose to believe in God or you choose not to. When you have the evidence, as biochemists have, of cellular life, you have a choice. Do I believe in materialism? Do I believe that our naturalism is, is the word I'm looking for? Do you believe in naturalism? Or do you believe that God created these things? It's a choice. Everything's a choice. Whether you're going to get up in the morning, whether you're going to stay in bed. What you're going to eat, what you're not going to eat. And he shows that there's a choice that we have to make. Do we have faith in Christ? Do we believe? It's it's, it's belief, but it's also a choice. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter... Hebrews 11 and verse 6, very familiar passage. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ is absolutely essential toward salvation. Next, we recognize that we must repent. We must turn around and go a different direction. As it says in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And remember that the beginning of Christ's gospel there in Mark, the first chapter, he said, repent and believe the gospel. Repent. That is something that each of us must do. And what it means to repent is to change. But it's more than just to change. It's to recognize what the problem is. I've often used the example, I think I've used it here, that of smoking. If a person comes to the place where he realizes that smoking is a sin, it's not, it, it's not taking care of the body that God has given me as the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is, you know, obnoxious to people around me. It is, uh, uh going to leave perhaps my wife and my kids, uh, prematurely uh, widows and fatherless. If we come to realize that it's a sin, that's one thing. But we also must come to realize why we did it. What motivated us to do it? The desire to fit in. Vanity. Perhaps rebellion against parents because parents said don't do it, so we're going to do it anyway. We, when we come to repentance, we've got to recognize how our minds think and what motivates us and what it is that we have to change. Following re- faith and Christ's sacrifice and repentance, we must be baptized by immersion. 
So after God calls us and brings us to repentance and we accept Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, the next step to salvation is water baptism. One should be baptized. And I encourage you to read the statement of beliefs and you can look up the scriptures. But Paul, uh, not Paul, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. When they said, what do we do? We killed the Messiah. What do we do? That's what he told them to do. Now, it is interesting that baptism is something that there's some who want to be baptized even before they fully understand things. One of the problems we have, we have some wonderful young people in the church. They want to be baptized right now, age 16, 15, 17. And we sometimes have to postpone that because they really don't, you know, they're not mature enough to fully comprehend it. Now, they think they do. I thought I did when I was young. But as we get older and we look back, we realize that maybe our brain wasn't totally formed. When you look at what young fellows do in life, you realize that there's something missing there. Um, not just young fellows, but young girls. They, they do a lot of really foolish things. And we can think that we know our mind. We think that, well, I'm not going to date outside the church. I'm not going to do things that I I shouldn't do. But we haven't always had the temptations. When a young person graduates from high school and he wants to go off to university and he wants to move out and move into a dorm or a frat house, he thinks he can handle it. And how few have learned the hard way. Not so easy. Not so easy. We have to realize that there's some things that are more difficult that we don't fully comprehend yet. You know, when you think about it this way, when you're five years old, what really excites you is an ice cream cone or a candy store. But if you put a five-year-old in a candy store or an ice, ice cream shop and left him to himself, what would happen? It wouldn't be a pretty sight. But suddenly, when you get to be about 13, 14 years of age, sometimes a little bit older, sometimes a little bit earlier, you discover a different taste, a different desire. Ice cream isn't nearly as exciting as that good-looking girl across the room from you in school. And boy, that suddenly you've discovered that. Now, I remember very clearly... Uh, when I used to go to the movies, always on a Saturday afternoon at that time, you'd go to the movies because it was really cheap on a military base. You'd go to a movie for 15 cents, and I think later it was 25 cents. That sounds pretty ridiculous, I know, but minimum wage was a lot less than it is today. But nevertheless, that was really, really cheap because outside in the, the real world, it was a dollar, dollar fifteen, dollar twenty-five, or something like that. So we, we could go to every single movie that ever came out. And every Saturday afternoon, we'd go to the movies. And, you know, I loved Western movies. And you know what I waited for in the Western movies? I was, I was looking for that barroom fight. Because every, you know, C-rated, D-rated Western movie that ever came out during those years always had a barroom fight. You knew it was coming. And they'd start breaking chairs and throwing people out windows. And, you know, it was, uh, that was what... We always look for. And you know what really ruined the movies was always a girl in it. (laughs) And I don't know how they got that guitar out in the middle of nowhere around the fireplace, but they always had a guitar where you you had the singing cowboy. (laughs) 
And that was not really what I came to see. I came to see the violence. Uh, that's, you know, just a guy thing. But suddenly, you, you noticed as you started to get a little bit older, that girl wasn't so uninteresting at all. And, of course, then you got the, the beach movies and other things that came out in the 60s. But in the, the Westerns, they might kiss at the end of the movie, but uh, most of the time they didn't even do that. They just rode off in the sunset. But if they kissed, you ever notice that, you know, you're looking there and it's kind of... <laughs> you see, it's kind of hard to kiss straight up because your nose is getting away, so somebody has to go... And you begin to see how it's affecting your mind a little bit. You're, you're, you're vicariously enjoying that part of the movie. You change someplace along the line. I don't know. It varies depending on your age. But suddenly you've become an expert on relationships. And your parents don't know a thing, even though you're here as a result of the fact that they kind of know something about love, but nevertheless, they don't know anything about it. They're just old fuddy-duddies, and you know more than they do, and you're 16, and, you know, you're too young to be in love, but you know better. You know, all those things happen, don't they? Well, the point is that we need to be a little bit more mature in order to to really understand what life is all about. And so we don't want young people to rush into it. I, I did baptize a 17-year-old one time in all my years in the ministry, one 17-year-old. But his father was the mayor of a city, West Monroe, uh, Louisiana. He had come into the church on his own. He kept badgering me to be baptized, and I finally did, and he stayed around for a long time. I don't know where he is today, but... Uh, it seemed to take, but nevertheless, we have to realize that it's important that we have some maturity to understand the issues. Now, on the other extreme, we have people who have been in the church for decades and are not baptized. They're in their middle to late 20s or 30s or 40s. I've known people who have attended the church for decades. I know right now people who have been in the church for decades and they, as far as I know, they, they, they uh, you know, do everything that everybody else does. They uh, perhaps pay tithes, I don't know. But they come to Sabbath services, they'll defend the truth, they keep the, the holy days. They come every week, they're there. And for all practical purposes, you would never know that they're not baptized, but something, for some reason, they're not. And I, I think that one of them is that sometimes people who grow up in the church and they see other people getting baptized and they think, oh, that's just a bandwagon. I don't want to be on that bandwagon. I've actually had that expressed to me before. You have other people that express that they, they were waiting for us to ask them because they thought that that's the way it worked or they thought that uh, uh, they weren't worthy of being baptized and they wanted to get perfect enough, and that's not going to happen just not going to happen. All you have to do is look around and everybody's been baptized and you can figure that one out. <laughs> not going to be perfect. But there, sometimes it's vanity. Maybe it's mom or dad are pressuring you to be baptized and you're not going to be pressured into it. 
Whatever the reason is, I don't know. But I'm just saying that, you know, if we're looking at the process of salvation, baptism by immersion is one of the steps that's necessary. You have to believe in Christ's sacrifice. You have to, you know, have that faith. You've got to repent. And you also have to be baptized. And you receive God's grace, his free gift, his forgiveness. And it is a free gift. We're not justified... uh, I mean, we're just, we are justified by His blood. He paid the penalty for us. It is a free gift. But we have to accept that free gift. We have to exercise living faith. Living faith. And we must grow in grace and knowledge. Second Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. Verse 18. It says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's, that's really a command. We must grow in the knowledge, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, how are we doing when it comes to growing? Uh, we could go a lot of different directions at this point, but I want to bring up something here that <clears throat> that uh, came up at our summer camp. Uh, Mr. Hilgenberg gave a Christian living class, and he, he brought out a number of points, but one of the points that he brought out was that we always seem to have a, a problem with modesty. And as he pointed out, it's usually the, the female of the species that it comes to modesty. And so he addressed this, and First uh, Timothy two. I just notice that very quickly. First uh, Timothy two and verse nine. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety. His whole subject was about propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for. Women professing godliness with good works. Now, it's not saying because we know of the rest of scriptures, it's not saying it's wrong for you to have a, a gold ring or, or some pearls or something nice like that, but it's talking about the, the, uh, what is the focus of one's life. And it's saying that there are things that are proper and things that are not. Now, when our young girls, for example, uh, look like, what was it, Little Abner? Was it Veronica? And what was the other gal in there that I think it was the other one? Uh, what's it? Daisy. Daisy. Yeah, Daisy. Uh, boy, that shows how far back some people go. Uh, <laughs> Veronica and, was it Jughead? Was he in part of that or was that a different cartoon? Different one. Okay, whatever. Um, anyway. These gals in, uh, uh, what was the cartoon I'm talking about? Uh, what did I just say? What? Oh, Little Abner. Thank you. Little Abner. Uh, the, the girls wore these really tight shorts, short shorts. And there was quite a bit on top as well. And it was all, supposedly, in cartoons and everything. But, you know, when, when our, our girls dress that way, that's not 
with propriety. And as Mr. Hilgenberg said, um, the problem is that on the top it's too low, on the bottom it's too short. And then there are other issues as well. But some of these things become problems. And one of the things that, that I've had to deal with, I've had a number of letters and people talk to me about the way that some of our young people dress at the summer camp because they see these pictures and they look at down the row and hear these girls with these really short shorts on. So Mr. Hilgenberg happened to address that subject. I certainly didn't tell him to. I don't think anybody else did. This is something that he's noticed and he felt needed to be addressed. And so I had a, a nice conversation with Mr. Munson and, and Mr. Uh, Fritz, and, and we, we sat down and talked. My wife was there, and we were talking about the summer camp and various things, and we, we addressed that subject. And this is something they've been struggling with for a number of years. One of the things that I suggested, which was not my idea, but it came from somebody else in a, another conversation while at camp, was that maybe we need to supply shorts. We supply a shirt, maybe we need to supply shorts for the girls, or in the guys too, I guess. But then, you know, they've discussed that. Mr. Munson and Mr. Fritz have discussed that in the past, but they came to the same conclusion I did. Now you get into real sticky thing because shorts are more expensive than shirts, and girls have a lot of different cuts. Guys, you just, you know, waste whatever the waist is, 32, 34, 96, whatever it might be, it, it, it'll work. But with girls, it's not quite so easy. It's much more complicated. So that idea kind of goes out the window. And as Mr. Munson said, the problem is parents. It's the parents who should be doing these things. But parents don't seem to know the difference between modest and immodest. Some of the things that are worn, I know that Mr. Fritz, Mr. Munson had to talk to different people about different things while they were there because some of the things were just very worldly. Now we're going to run into the same thing at the feast. There are people who are going to dress rather immodestly. This is discouraging to people who are trying to do it right, but then again... People need to make sure they're not being self-righteous about things like that. Well, Mr. Hilgenberg addressed the subject of propriety, but does anyone ever think that maybe he's talking about me? Doesn't seem to be the case. I I have to confess, I'm a little bit um, jaundiced about this because I've spoken about it in the past and nothing ever changes. I've asked the question very loudly, where are the fathers? They don't seem to show up. Some think we shouldn't talk about such things as modesty. Yet Paul talked about hair length in 1 Corinthians 11th chapter. He talked about women being having their heads shaved or shorn, cut short, not long enough and long enough. In reality, four different lengths. He wasn't specific. He didn't get the measuring tape out, as Mr. Fritz said. We, we don't want to go to that, where we, we get a ruler out. I agree. But, you know, God is, is he allows for some uh, 
some judgment on these things. Um, for for example, if we go to uh, Exodus the twenty eighth chapter, Exodus twenty eight. It is interesting, isn't it, that even the priests, God wanted a certain modesty factor there. Uh, Exodus 28, verse 42, it says, um, You shall make for them, this is talking about the priests. He says, Exodus 28, 42, You shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness, they shall reach from the waist to the thighs. Now, he doesn't define where the thigh is, does he? But he says from the waist to the thighs. There was a specific directive there that they weren't to have short trousers, you know, short, short. They could have short, but they weren't short, short trousers. And these were for the priests. And if you go back to the 20th chapter, he talks about the altar, and when they go up on the altar, that they're not to go up by steps. Why? Verse 26. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Well, now God addresses this subject of modesty then. Paul addressed the subject of Hair length, he didn't say exactly how long it had to be. And, you know, people, especially with, with women, uh, you know, as you get older, it's not as easy to keep long. It could be really ragged or something. So they're, they're different. But there, there should be a style that says, this is a woman. So when you're riding behind in the car and you see somebody in front of you, as, as one of my friends said, what really got him was sometimes he's riding behind somebody, he sees his beautiful hair, and he gets up there and he sees it's a guy. I really felt kind of embarrassed with things like that. You should be able to tell whether it's a girl or a guy. But our world wants to uh, cause those things to, to not be recognized. You know, God is not happy with, with parents and with leaders who fail to restrain bad behavior. God expects parents to restrain bad behavior or inappropriate behavior. Behavior that's not fitting in propriety. In 1 Samuel 3.13, you can just look up very quickly, 1 Samuel 3.13. This was Eli, and Eli, uh, God was not happy with. Samuel 3.13. Find it here quickly. He says, For I have told him, this is God speaking to Samuel. He says, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for iniquity, which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile. Now, they really were vile. And he did not restrain them. He did not restrain them. In Exodus 32.25, I won't turn there, we have Aaron who refused to restrain the Israelites in the golden calf incident. God condemned him because he did not restrain their behavior. We don't like restraints put on us. Romans 8.7 tells us that the carnal mind is enmity against God. 
not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. But let's turn over to Psalm 2 and verse 3. At the very end, the nations are raging against God. This is really a prophecy of the end. It says in verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's cast off all restraint, the bonds and the cords that hold us back, spiritually speaking. Let's cast that all off. We don't want any kind of restraint put on our behavior. You know, God wants us to, to live a certain way. And at some point, we never know when, we'll all have to meet our Creator. And He's going to judge us on little things. He's going to look not just at the big things we do, but He's going to look at our day-to-day way of life. Is it one of outgoing concern for others, thinking about them, or is it just self-centered, perhaps sensual, perhaps just, hey, look at me, vanity and this sort of thing? And when we meet our Creator, we never know when, what then? Will we live forever? Or will we be forever as we once were before we came into this life? Dennis Prager gives an um, interesting statement on page 38. Um, and it, I know that none of you are, I, I say I know, I don't know that. But perhaps some of our young people are uh, agnostics. They kind of believe this, but they, they may not. And, and he's talking in this essay. He says, I acknowledge that belief in God or in atheism is indeed a choice. But as noted at the beginning of this essay, virtually everything worthwhile is a choice. Love is a choice. Leading a good life is a choice. Marriage is a choice. For most people, having children is a choice. Working hard is a choice. Taking care of others is a choice. Learning a musical instrument or a foreign language instead of playing video games is a choice. I see no good reason not to make this choice and myriad reasons to do so, in other words, to believe in God. Yet while an ever-increasing number of people consider themselves agnostic, neutral, they don't believe in God, they don't not believe in God, the great majority of these people live as if they are atheists. Bereft of all the magnificent life-enhancing benefits that God-centered life provides. These individuals are agnostics intellectually, but atheists behaviorally. Tough word there. You know, we, we may claim that we are Christian. We may claim that we believe in God. But the point is, do we think on a day-to-day basis about the decisions that we make? Is this a godly decision, or is this a decision that is driven by my desires, my wants? It's a big question. And, and every one of us has to, to think about those things because... We all fall short in one way or another. I've given an example of dress, but how many other ways are we living for today rather than living for much greater good? So I'm not trying to condemn anyone. What I'm trying to do is just make us think. Make us think. And then make sure that we make the decisions that uh, are going to last forever. 
We don't need to be like Alfie, nihilistic, hedonistic, but we want to live the good life. We want to live the right life, and we want to live forever.